and I work as a researcher at the University of Eastern Finland. My research focuses on the regulation of EU-Russia energy trade relations and in particular the regulation of natural gas trade. Here the rules of the WTO have come to play a central role following Russia's withdrawal from provision application of the Energy Charter Treaty in 2009. Since then, WTO rules form the only comprehensive regulatory framework for EU-Russia energy trade. Today, I want to discuss the recent panel report in a dispute brought by Russia at the WTO in relation to the EU's energy policy and regulation, the so-called EU energy package case. Before I get to the case, I want to provide a brief overview on how the WTO functions generally, as well as some issues related to Russia and the EU specifically. Established in 1995, the WTO now encompasses more than 160 members. The WTO agreement creates a number of rules and obligations among its membership. Cornerstones of the WTO are the rules of non-discrimination. The most favored nation standard requires WTO members to extend equal treatment among each other. The national treatment standard requires members to treat goods and services from other WTO members alike to their domestic goods and services suppliers. Market access is a further key feature of the WTO agreement. It is established through a general prohibition on quantitative restrictions, as well as bindings on the level of tariffs that may be charged for imports. All of these, as well as most of the other rules of the WTO, are subject to a binding dispute settlement system that members may invoke if they consider that their rights have been curtailed. It is difficult to overstate the importance and uniqueness of the WTO dispute settlement system since there are few other international courts that have jurisdiction over as many countries as the WTO dispute settlement system has. Because of its important role and effectiveness to date, the dispute settlement system is often referred to as the crown jewel of the WTO. This dispute settlement system has, of course, not been without controversy. Crucially, the United States have been unhappy with the judgments of the appellate body. United States have for some time considered that the appellate body has been overstepping its function by moving from the interpretation of the law of the WTO to actually modifying it. I will refrain from giving opinions on the merits of the claims of the United States, but factually this situation has come to a head so far that the United States has been blocking the appointment of new appellate body judges. Due to this, the number of judges of the appellate body has been reduced from the ordinary seven to only four sitting judges. This has already led to delays in the handling of appeals by the appellate body, and since any appeal will technically require at least three judges to hear a case, there is a real risk that the crown jewel of the WTO system may soon shine less brightly. Dispute settlement is central to my podcast today, as I will be talking about the recently circulated panel report in the EU energy package dispute. Panel reports are the first instance of judgment and can still be appealed by either party within 60 days of the circulation of the panel report. At the time of recording, it remains to be seen whether the EU or Russia will appeal the panel report. In case the report is appealed, a number of findings of the panel may be modified. 
I will look at one finding of the panel that may be modified at the end of this podcast. Already prior to its accession to the WTO, Russia indicated that it would challenge the EU's energy market liberalization measures introduced through the third energy package under WTO rules. The third energy package introduced in 2009 is the latest set of rules for EU energy market regulation. These rules are implemented in the EU for both the gas and electricity markets. Among its key objectives are to create a genuine internal market for energy across the EU by increasing competition and creating better interconnections between EU member states. A key means to increase competitions are requirements on so-called unbundling. Simply put, unbundling is the separation of energy production and supply activities from transmission activities. The third energy package introduced three different unbundling models and EU member states could choose which ones they would implement. Next to full ownership unbundling, which requires companies owning both production and transmission to sell off either type of asset, two other unbundling models are also available. These are based on the legal separation of production and supply activities from transmission activities. From a commercial perspective, and this was also argued in the EU energy package case by Russia, the legal unbundling models are more desirable. So how does energy trade regulation work in the WTO? Since the WTO was not negotiated with a focus on energy trade, there are no energy specific rules. It is, however, well established that the general rules of the WTO apply equally to trade with energy goods and services as they do in relation to most goods and services. Without going into too much detail, there is one particular point that should be noted in relation to energy trade regulation. In the WTO, different rules apply to trade in goods and trade in services. In energy trade, however, these two aspects often overlap. For example, while trade with natural gas is trade with goods, in practice there are a number of intermediate services necessary to supply the energy good. A key service required for natural gas trade is, for example, transmission via pipelines. While the classification of goods is quite straightforward, services classifications require a more elaborate system. In the WTO, services are classified by both the mode of supply, that is the means by which a service is supplied, as well as the category of a service. The modes are defined in relatively broad terms. For the case I'm discussing today, it is the third mode, consisting of the supply of services through commercial presence that is of key relevance. The services category or sector is defined through sectoral and subsectoral listings, such as business services, demolition work, or services incidental to energy distribution. The relevance of this classification system lies in the circumstance that while the most favored nation principle applies generally across all sectors and modes of supply, the national treatment principle applies only where countries have positively accepted it. In the case of the EU, these specific commitments vary since countries that have joined the EU post-1994 have their own schedules. In the EU energy package case, this has particular relevance since only some countries, namely Croatia, Hungary and Lithuania, have made commitments specific to energy trade in the sector defined as pipeline transportation services.
Following the circulation of the panel report, the general observation by the media seemed to be about a win for the European Union in this case. While it is true that the EU prevailed on most points, Russia did not lose this case. Besides that, while many of the panel's findings were expected and uncontroversial, in my opinion, the panel erred in at least one crucial point to which I will return at the end of this podcast. To begin with, I will look at some of those key issues in which Russia failed to establish its case. The third country certification measures introduced through Article 11 of the Gas Market Directive, generally known as the Gazprom Clause, have been a topic of controversy since their introduction. In effect, Article 11 calls for an assessment of the effect that the certification of a third country transmission system operator will have on the security of gas supply to the EU. Russia argued that operators of other third countries were not subject to these assessments to the same degree as Russian operators were. This was argued to constitute a violation of the most favored nation treatment standard. The relevant question the panel sought to answer in this regard was whether suppliers from other third countries were given more favorable treatment than Russian suppliers. Eventually, the panel found against Russia, primarily on a factual basis. For one, the Russian services suppliers that were alleged to have been treated less favorably did in fact not qualify as judicial persons attributable to Russia, as less than 50% of these were owned by Russian persons. For the other, Russia made claims in relation to several certifications that were in fact made before the effective date of the Third Gas Directive, which introduced the Third Country Clause. Eventually, the panel's findings against Russia were primarily based on these factual circumstances and less on the substantive requirements of the Gazprom Clause. The second key issue on which Russia was not able to prevail in this dispute is related to the unbundling requirements of the Third Energy Package. These requirements had aroused specific ire from Russia at the introduction, as these were considered to undermine the ownership and operational model of the Russian gas export monopoly Gazprom. As I mentioned before, unbundling is the requirement for companies that own both production or supply and distribution assets to separate these types of activities either fully by selling off one type of asset or at least separating these functions legally. The claims made in the EU energy package dispute do not relate against the unbundling requirements as such but rather the discrimination that arises from the circumstance that not all EU member states introduced the legal unbundling models in the implementation of the Third Energy Package. In Russia's view, the legal unbundling models provide for more favorable treatment of service suppliers compared to full ownership unbundling. Consequently, the choice of some EU member states to implement only the ownership unbundling model was claimed to have created a circumstance of less favorable treatment for Russian energy services suppliers. Russia's claims of less favorable treatment were related to the treatment the EU had allegedly accorded to other third countries in violation of the most favored nation standard. The analysis of the panel therefore focused on whether the implementation of the different unbundling models of the EU accorded Russia de facto less favorable treatment than that accorded to services suppliers of other third countries. The panel observed that while there may have been more instances where Russian pipeline services suppliers ceased to supply services due to the implementation of the ownership unbundling model, 
This simply reflected the circumstance that Russian transport services suppliers had a greater commercial presence in the EU than those of other countries. Hence, it was not the design, structure or operation of the unbundling models that resulted in more instances of Russian services suppliers being affected, but the fact that there were more Russian services suppliers operating in the market. Consequently, the panel did not find a violation of the most favored nation treatment principle. Now that I have moved through some of the key issues on which the EU prevailed, it is time to look at the issues on which Russia was able to make its case. Fundamentally, there are three such issues. First, the third country certification measures as implemented by Croatia, Hungary and Lithuania were challenged by Russia as incompatible with the national treatment standard. This is due to the circumstance that the so-called Gazprom clause places the security of supply test only on third country transmission system operators. As I mentioned before, this security of supply test is basically an assessment by national regulators of whether the certification of third country operators puts at risk the security of energy supply to the EU. Please note that this is distinct from the failed claim in relation to most favored nation treatment, which I just discussed. In claims of national treatment violation, the comparison of treatment is made between domestic operators and those of third countries. In relation to whether the third country certification measures provide for treatment less favorable to third countries, the EU in fact agreed with Russia and noted that the certification requirement provides for different and less favorable treatment to like services and like service suppliers of other WTO members. Expectedly, the panel found that the implementing laws of Croatia, Hungary and Lithuania are inconsistent with the national treatment standard under WTO rules. The second successful claim by Russia was made on the capacity cap that was placed on the Opel pipeline. The Opel pipeline, located in Germany, is a key piece of infrastructure for Russian gas imports to the EU, as it connects the Nord Stream 1 pipeline with the wider European market. The capacity cap has the effect of limiting the pipeline capacity that could be booked for Russian gas to be transported via this pipeline. In Russia's view, the capacity cap has the effect of limiting Russian gas imports. In the WTO framework, most types of quantitative restrictions are prohibited, as these are economically among the most trade distortive measures. In its analysis of this claim, the panel focused on the effect that the capacity cap has, namely that it may affect the quantity of natural gas imported from a certain origin. The nature of natural gas as a commodity that has to necessarily be transported through fixed infrastructure had a particular importance for the panel's reasoning. The panel firstly stated that measures beyond the entry point would normally be considered to be internal measures and would therefore not be subject to the broad prohibition on quantitative restrictions. However, due to the specific circumstances of the case and the nature of natural gas being bound to fixed infrastructure for transportation, also measures beyond the entry point could have the same effect as border measures. Based on this reasoning, the capacity cap of the Opel pipeline was found to be a quantitative restriction on the import of Russian natural gas to the EU. The third successful challenge by Russia was related to what are known as projects of common interest, essentially infrastructure projects that receive priority treatment from the EU. 
Projects of common interest can benefit from accelerated planning and permit granting, as well as lower administrative costs due to the streamlined environmental assessment processes. There are several criteria that infrastructure has to fulfill to be selected as a project of common interest. These include market integration, security of supply and improvement of competition. One key means to achieve these goals is the diversification of supply routes. Russia essentially claimed that these criteria disadvantage natural gas of Russian origin. In its assessment of the Russian claims, the panel first set out to determine whether the diversification criteria do in fact disadvantage gas of Russian origin. Here the panel concluded that while the diversification of gas supplies would also affect other gas suppliers, including domestic ones, none would be affected to the same extent as Russia. Subsequently, the panel moved to determine separately how the objective of diversification of supplies would impact the competitive opportunities of Russian gas in relation to domestic natural gas and gas imported from third countries. In relation to the more favorable treatment of domestic natural gas, the panel found that because the projects of common interest criteria are designed to increase the development of pipeline projects to transport gas of non-Russian origin, effectively, these provide more favorable conditions to the transportation of gas of EU origin compared to that accorded to Russian gas. Consequently, the projects of common interest criteria were found to be inconsistent with the national treatment obligation. Based on similar arguments, namely that projects of common interest criteria incentivize imports of natural gas from third countries other than Russia, these measures were also found to be inconsistent with the most favored nation obligation. As a last key topic in this podcast, I want to discuss one important point on which I believe the panel erred in its analysis. This is the question of likeness between liquefied natural gas, also known as LNG, and natural gas in its gaseous state. If LNG and pipeline natural gas had been found to be like and directly competitive products, their respective treatment in the EU could have been examined to determine whether one is accorded more favorable treatment in relation to the other. Since LNG can benefit from various exemptions when compared to natural gas in its gaseous state, if these products were found to be like, similar treatment should be accorded to both. This would of course benefit Russia as the largest importer of pipeline gas to the EU. To determine the likeness between LNG and natural gas in its gaseous form, the panel applied the characteristic likeness test for goods that focus on four criteria. Firstly, the properties, nature and quality of the products. Secondly, the end uses of the products. Thirdly, consumers' tastes and habits in respect of the products. And lastly, the tariff classification of the product. In relation to the first criterion, the panel found that since LNG is liquid and natural gas is gaseous, these do not share the same properties, nature and quality. I disagree on this. Firstly, natural gas in both its fluid and gaseous form consists of exactly the same molecules. Moreover, from a physical standpoint, both liquids and gases are classified as fluids. As opposed to solids in which there is a rigid atomic structure, atoms in fluids and gases can flow. The main difference between gases and liquids is in fact their compressibility. While gases are typically compressible, liquids are less so. For the second criterion, that is, end uses of the products, 
A key element relied on by the panel in its analysis was the fact that in addition to being regasified, a small fraction of LNG is also being used as LNG for maritime transport or as a truck fuel. This development has been driven by new rules under the International Maritime Organization that will cut the allowed sulfur content in marine fuel from 3.5% to 0.5% by January 2020. Because LNG is virtually sulfur-free, it is an interesting alternative. However, the use of LNG as a maritime fuel is still very limited. In regard to the third criterion, that is, consumers' tastes and habits, Russia had not substantiated its claims and the panel therefore made no findings on this. In relation to the fourth criterion, that is, product classification, the panel accepted the EU's argument that since LNG and natural gas have different classifications in the HS system at the six-digit level, their products are unlike. In this regard, it should be noted that in previous disputes, products that do not have the same tariff classification have nonetheless fulfilled the criteria of likeness. The Japan alcoholic beverage dispute is a case in point. In this case, the appellate body found that various spirit products were alike, despite being classified by different headings at the six-digit level HS classification. In my opinion, the panel did not provide convincing arguments in its conclusion that liquefied natural gas and pipeline natural gas are unlike products. Generally, assessments of likeness should be made on a case-by-case basis, making reference to all the criteria for likeness before weighing these for an overall conclusion. Moreover, generally, more weight should have been given to an analysis of the competitive relationship that exists between LNG and natural gas in its gaseous form. This is arguably the most important criterion in a likeness analysis. Whether an appeal on the likeness analysis or any other findings of the panel will be made remains uncertain at the time of recording. Should an appeal be made, I may get the opportunity to reassess some merits of this panel report. On this happy note, I would like to thank you for listening and I hope you have enjoyed this contribution.